Somewhere out there is a mom or dad struggling right now, knee-deep into cleaning up breakfast as their first grader yells from upstairs about internet problems, trying to get on school, and their toddler is on the verge of a meltdown with a stinky diaper. If there was ever a time when you might feel like you can't do it all, it's now, during the pandemic. I'm here to say that's okay, and my conversation with Bethany Saltman is for you. What do you say to those maybe skeptics that might say we're we're paying too much attention to our kids come on we're such a type a get it right culture that we really lose track of how important it is to just delight in your life and and to delight in your life with your child in some ways bethany's just an average mom but she's also a mom that for much of her life questioned if her mother ever loved her and in turn she questioned a lot about her own parenting Bethany's a writer, and she became obsessed with a woman named Mary Ainsworth. I mean, really obsessed. Mary Ainsworth was a pioneer in the psychology of child development, and she came up with a procedure to systematically study how attached a child is to his or her caregiver. This is in the 1960s. Now, terms like secure-attached, anxious-attached, avoidant-attached are tossed around pretty commonly if you eavesdrop into consultations with child psychologists and counselors. And the key to this diagnostic label is that attachment is, bar none, the most researched area of psychology. It's bedrock. And it predicts mental illness and stability in adulthood. Attachment is if you can receive your child when the child asks you in a time of stress. And the way that we are able to do that is that we need to be able to receive ourselves. If you've ever wondered what kind of parent you are and whether your kids are going to wind up spending the equivalent of a college degree in therapy, or maybe they already have, I think you'll be grateful for my conversation with Bethany. Her journey as a mom in her book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, is a gift to every parent who, like me, has been bombarded by well-intended advice about how to be the best parent in the world. So yes, this is, I think, going to soothe some of those anxieties. You don't have to be afraid that you're damaging your child. How do I know that? You know, one of the most inspiring um, pairs I've ever seen when I was doing the strange situation training was of a mother and her baby that did not fit the part of caring, loving, soothing um, parents in the way that we might think. But it worked for that baby. Bethany says it's okay not to be so hard on yourself. Now, that's easier said than done. There's a lot of fear and shaming that parents take on. The sheer volume of it and the self-help that you're bombarded with, it it used to be just your mother-in-law you had to worry about. It's refreshing to hear Bethany tell us we don't have to be perfect parents to be the best parents. It's totally messy. It just has to be good enough. Such a good message from Bethany. I really want to make sure that people, particularly women and mothers, get the message from me specifically that this is not about um, doing it a certain way, doing, you know, following a checklist of behaviors, having to look a certain way. It's really about connecting with yourself and with your baby in a way that makes sense for you guys. I hope you'll share it with other moms and dads and grandparents and anyone that might ever consider being a parent. 
And by the way, speaking of not being perfect, some of you might notice my voice sounds a little funny on this episode. That was me speaking a little too close to the mic. Hopefully it's good enough. I'm Keith Miller, and this episode of The Soul of Life is called The Kids Will Be Okay. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. My guest today is Bethany Saltman. She's an author, editor, and researcher, and her work can be seen in magazines like The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Parents, and many others. Her book is called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, which came out in April. This is her first book. It covers a lot. It's part memoir. She writes about her journey from wondering if she's a good mom to knowing that she is good enough, part reporting on social science, and part biography of Mary Ainsworth who pioneered a way to test children's level of healthy attachment to parents. In addition to being a self-help book, I'd add, um, I found it really amazing, and I'm so thrilled to have you, Bethany. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Certainly. Well, you know, we're going to cover a lot today. I mean, I certainly know we're going to talk about parenting and being a parent. I'm a parent to two teenagers, and I know you are a parent as well. And, and, And also the importance of having a healthy relationship to the things that our children attach to, namely like technology. That's one thing we'll talk about, including something I just saw last night, which um, I happened to turn on Netflix. And it's like one of the top, you know, the top shows that's out. It's called The Social Experiment. Hey, tiny correction here. It's actually called The Social Dilemma, but I keep calling it something else. And I thought, wow. And I started watching it. And, and we'll, talk, we'll touch on this a bit later, but talk about the strange experiment, the, the strange situation, yeah, social yeah. media and the effects of social media. We'll talk about it. I think it's a must watch for every parent who has a child with a phone, a smartphone. Um, so Bethany, I mean, you and I are in a very small club, very small club of people who've written books on attachment uh, in psychology. And I've watched when I teach on, on this subject, some things that you write about, the horror on people's faces in, in, in my audience when I tell them about what the state-of-the-art parenting was in the 1950s when mm. pediatricians were recommending, they were saying to parents, to mothers, if you have to hug your kids, do it once a year, if you must. <laughs> and uh, sad statistics, like the way hospital nurseries begin to sanitize their wards and wouldn't let people touch babies, and one out of 10 of those babies would survive. It's horrifying. And you write about this. You write about B.F. Skinner, the behavioralist, his, his baby tender that he put his, chi- his own child in for six months to kind of be like literally not touching or interacting with this child. Holy shit. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, but like, yeah. that's a lot. What kind of a mom are you, Bethany? Oh, my gosh. 
What kind of a mom am I? I am a, uh, a very human mom, a very flawed mom, a mom who loves her daughter enough to, um, to try to understand myself better and what love is and to try to understand what the nature of being a human being is. I'm, deeply, I'm a deeply inspired mom, but I'm a mom who um, has a lot of her own stuff, you know? Yeah. Tell us about the strange situation. Why, why did you choose to write about this really specific lab experiment in, in, in child psychology? Well, to be um, really exact, it's actually not an experiment in the sense that there's no control group. Um, what it is, is it's called a laboratory procedure. It's something it. that's been done, um, you know, like tens of thousands of times around the world with every single kind of baby and caregiver we could imagine. And um, I became really uh, obsessed with this because I, my, my, I'm a poet. That's my, that's my sort of nature. And that's what I have a degree in. And that's what I have spent most of my life um, working with is, is poetry. And when I learned about the strange situation, this 20-minute laboratory procedure that can distill um, the first year of life into this 20-minute um, kind of crucible, to me, that really felt like a poem and something that I wanted to understand. And it was a poem that was helping us understand love. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I was riveted and I felt like, wow, this is something that I need to learn more about. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinician. I'm a writer and I'm a researcher and, um, and was really just compelled to understand what was being seen in that 20 minutes. And I wanted to test it out. I wanted to see, could this possibly be true? Right. Can you explain what exactly the procedure is? What, what happens? Because I, I have a hard time watching uh, mm. this kind of procedure when you, when you see if somebody looks this up and they watch an example of this on either the Mary Ainsworth website or other places. It's hard to watch, right? Can you describe what it, what it actually is? Yeah, so in a nutshell, it's a series of comings and goings. It's in nine episodes of, you know, like three minutes or so each. And um, a, a baby and their caregiver enter a laboratory room with some two chairs and some toys. And they, they come in and the observers right away begin noticing what kind of a baby is this? What kind of temperament does the baby have? What does the relationship look like between the mother and the baby or the caregiver and the baby? So is there a lot of checking of in? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and you know, this has been, um, this has been in play since the 60s, like 1964. Right. And at that, and in the beginning, they were looking at every single thing you could possibly imagine. Things have really boiled down over the years. And so um, we're looking at the, the first episode, we're looking at temperament and what kind of a baby this, you know, what, how this baby seems to express him or herself. Um, and then a stranger comes in and then we look at what kind of a relationship does the child have to a stranger? Does the child move toward the mother, the caregiver in a time of um, unusual, you know, when an unusual person enters the room, which is developmentally appropriate at a year old? And then the, um, the mother leaves the room and we see what does the baby do in response. And this people often feel is the important part. Like, does the baby cry? Does the baby freak out? And that's actually much more related to temperament than attachment. Some babies are going to have a big reaction. Other babies aren't. Some babies will be soothed by a stranger. Some babies won't. What we're really looking for is the first time the mother returns. Um, we're looking at reunions. And does the baby... 
return to its own sense of homeostasis. So that's why it's so important what kind of baby we're looking at. Because if you've got a really rambunctious, excitable baby who is, you know, equally excitably upset when the mother leaves, and but when the mother returns, can't get back to its its original state right. of playing, exploring, then there might be something going on there. So yeah. the strange situation is a series of comings and goings that culminates in the baby being left totally alone and then the mother returning. Right. And, that, and that's, so what the, we're that's the part I have trouble watching. It's <laughs> like you're yeah, watching the sure. child. Right. It's, 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 you're kind of putting a distress factor into the child's experience and seeing how he or she responds. And then, and Absolutely. then keeping track of how the mother, what kind of behaviors, caring behaviors, soothing behaviors, or lack thereof, right? There may be on, on the part of the caregiver. Um, right. It's, it's really important from the beginning of a, any conversation like this to, to really hone in on judgment um, language. Yeah. Soothing, not soothing. Caring, not caring. What we're yeah. looking at is does this relationship work for this dyad? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the most inspiring um, pairs I've ever seen when I was doing the strange situation training was of a mother and her baby that did not fit the part of caring, loving, soothing, um, parents in the way that we might think, but it worked for that baby. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. attachment has been weaponized against women specifically for mm-hmm. so long, mm-hmm. and people think that attachment isn't for them, that it's not interesting. And in fact, it's for all of us, we're all attached and we're all right. functioning in our attachment systems. I really want to make sure that people, particularly women and mothers get the message from me specifically that this is not about, um, doing it a certain way, doing, you know, mm-hmm. following a checklist of behaviors, having to look yeah. a certain way. It's really about connecting with yourself and with your baby in a way that makes sense for you guys. Doing what's right in that moment with that child. Uh, and, exactly. And, and just to, to, to asterisk what you're saying, to footnote that, 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 you know, historically in psychology, because it was until recently, and I'm a social worker, so I know that social work played a big part in bringing um, the feminine role, female role and the female voice into the research and into interactions. And prior to that, it was a male driven field and driven by male doctors who were, um, were, were judgmental. Frankly, Freud was uh, blamed mothers for a lot of things. So I, I just wanted to footnote that for folks. Um, and it's so important what you're saying that, that this is that we, that we use language that's, that's not judgmental and that, whatever you're gathering information that you may gather from that may be objective from these sort of tests, you're using it in the context of trying to adjust in a tune and in a tune is a word that comes up. I know a lot in, in attachment yeah. situation. Um, we, we know, I mean, we've come a long way, right? We have, we've come a long way from the 1950s and even the 1960s when Ainsworth and Mary Main and Bowlby and others were doing some of this, the research on early, childhood experiments. Um, real quick though, I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between the, the strange situation experiment and this, I guess, would you call it, is it the still face experiment where the child, where the mother is told to just have a blank, you know, is interacting, you know, in scene oh, yeah. one, and then they tell the mother, just stop with your facial expressions, just completely stonewall the child. That's hard to yeah, watch too. The- yeah, that's really hard. The still face experiment came, I believe, before the the uh, the strange situation. And to be honest, I'm not an expert in that. Yeah. That's a very, very specific um, exercise in understanding how important affect is right. in regulating 
a baby, yep. which and is really important for all of us. You know, these, right. the social engagement affects stuff, cute. what yes. we're doing right now. Yes. I mean, we're right. on zoom, so we're doing it with each other. Right. And, um, and when a baby is in the presence of a mother or a caregiver, a loved one who, who subtracts the affect from his right. or her face, that baby is very dysregulated and upset. Right. right. And so that's just one piece of the attachment system. And then the baby eventually learns not to have those reactions, him or herself also. So exactly. So baby, and and that, that can lead to an avoidant attachment. Avoidant attachment. Yep. Um, I mean, now we, I feel like we kind of know in our field, certainly, and I think in the wider culture, it's broadening. People are beginning to realize that, that attachment, that, I'm sorry, attention is love, right? That yes, where we give 100%. attention, attention is love. Um, we've come a long way in that when we see it popping up in, in our school systems, where they're more fluent in developmental psychology in, in curriculums or activities or even behavioral expectations. We have a program here um, that's being studied, um, you know, restorative justice and, and bringing um, disciplinary actions into, into develop, in, in line with developmental thinking and, and thinking about the, um, that, that children are um, important and valuable from the beginning, that, that how we respond to them makes the difference. It's not that they're just given to us as good or bad kids. Um, it's how we respond to them right. and their needs. What do you say to the person, um, and, I, and I might sort of uh, kind of parenthetically say maybe grandparents, um, not always, but try not to be judgmental here, but people who may complain, Meet the Fockers comes to mind in, in that movie, uh, the way the, the grandparents <laughs> were, uh, one set of grandparents were um, uh, depicted there, they may complain that, that we're raising a generation of coddled kids, that they're constantly praised, totally opposite of the 1950s where kids were, you know, seen and not heard type of thing. Um, and kids are being told, like, everyone's a winner, everybody gets an award, you know, when they participate. What do you say to those parents, those maybe skeptics that might say, we're, we're paying too much attention to our kids? Come on. Hmm. Well, I don't think that coddling has anything to do with attachment. Um, I probably would agree with those grandparents, frankly. Um, I am not a fan of, of praise for no, for praise sake. Um, I really, I'm a pretty tough mom. Um, I really hold Azalea to her own accountability and I I don't praise her for when I don't think she's, when she's done a good job. And I don't think everybody should be a winner, but to me, that isn't even about attachment because Mm -hmm. attachment is a much deeper level of connection. You know, we can be any style of parent. If we think about, you know, 65% of the world is considered securely attached. And if you consider how, you know, the the level of diversity within that sample, you know, 65% of the world's population. Is securely um, attached? That sounds big. Is securely attached. That's big. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, we haven't, of course, tested every single person. This is an extrapolation based on research. So um, in other words, whether you overpraise or underpraise, you know, screen time, no screens, organic food, not organic food. Sports after school, watching TV after school, you know, these are all kinds of life choices that may or may not um, relate to one's attachment system, but they're not, that's not really what attachment is about. Attachment is if you can receive your child when the child asks you Mm -hmm. in in a a time of stress. And the way that we are able to do that is that we need to be able to receive ourselves. So this is not some kind of esoteric, 
you know, therapeutic approach, because again, 65% of us are securely attached and we're certainly not all in therapy. Yeah. It's about a, a sort of intrinsic, um, you know, element of who we are that gets passed down generation after generation that simply pays attention. You know, when Mary Ainsworth did her first study in Uganda, um, 65% of those, those mothers, she found them to be securely attached. And these were women who were just like, by their very nature, kind of interested in their kids. They're what Mary Ainsworth called excellent informants. They could tell her, you know, about their potty training, which happened at five months, by the way. Wow. What they liked to eat, where they slept, who they liked best in their family. Um, you know, they just paid attention to their children and they kind of, they liked them. They delighted in them. Mm -hmm. It's so simple and it's so primitive and basic that to me, you know, the generation thing, the grandparents thing, like that's always going to be the case. You know, we're right. always going to be changing the way that we, quote, do things. But this never changes. You know, in order to be a securely attached individual, you must grow up in an environment where someone, where you're the apple of someone's eye. And ideally, it's your parents. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week, I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. I often say it's it's sort of the idea that that you had somebody where the you know the lights were on and somebody was home. Like when when exactly when, when well you, said. You know yes. you, when you needed something when it really came down to it. That's exactly right. Somebody was paying attention and and engaged and That's interested. That's exactly right. Um, and and, yeah. and I think you, you say this so many times in the book, um, you say it without saying it, I think, <laughs> but it's it, because you spend so much detail uh, courageously. And I, I have to give you real credit for doing this, just putting yourself mm. out there and speaking about your own, um, um, you know, judgments that you carry from your own childhood and, and about who you might be as a mom. And are you, who are you as a parent? Like, are you a good mom, you know? And um you, you really say so often how how it really matters um, how you how you adapt and how you change and over time that you don't get it all right. Yeah, there's no way we can get it all right as parents. No way. No and, way. Um, you know, those of us who do struggle with anxiety or anyone that's that's that likes things to be a certain way. When you have a kid, you realize, well, oh, this is like, you know off the charts, a, a, a perfect recipe to test those parts of you that may be um, anxious if things aren't going quite right because, you know. Yeah, I mean, kids are lords of chaos. <laughs> exactly. And coronavirus. No, <laughs> and just, like, no. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Tell me about delight. Well, delight was what Mary Ainsworth found was present in securely attached relationships. And to her, it was a technical term, a scientific term. Mm. Um, and it's something that she looked for. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, we all know what it is, but nobody expects it to do anything very magical because it's just, you know, something that we, we delight in things. Like, for instance, um, you know, Azalea is 14 years old now, so we can do a lot of fun things together. 
Um, for instance, watch Real Housewives of New York and Beverly Hills. We, I am a, new, a Real Housewives fan. And, you know, it's trashy as heck. And it's certainly not like very wholesome for her to watch, but we delight in it together. And we have these incredible conversations about mean girls, about relationships, about body image, about plastic surgery, about fashion, about about sex. I mean, lots of connection. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. And we are Mm. delighting in that together. And, you know, we are so, we're such a type A get it right culture that we really lose track of how important it is to just delight in your life and, and to delight in your life with your child. And right. that it doesn't have to be this, you know, like perfect, um, you know, checklist of how some, some like backed by science evidence, you know, says we should play this way or that yeah. way. And it's like, Oh yeah. my God. Just sort of just put the relax. books away. Right. I mean, just relax. It, just relax. Yeah. Just be there. Just relax. Can, can you share the segment that, that uh, I asked you to read about this, this kind of evocative word, delight? Um, sure. Because it, it really, you know, your writing is fantastic and, and the way you, oh, you not just document the, the history. I mean, really, you do a, you do a service for all uh, psych students, undergrad and grad, anybody in any related health fields as well who needs to know about the attachment research, which is one of the most studied in, in fact, I think you say it's really, and I found this to be true, it's, there are mountains of research on it. It is, it is probably the most uh, steadfast um, type of research in psychology where some things come yeah, in and out absolutely. of vogue, so to speak. But attachment is solid absolutely. bedrock. Um, absolutely. And it's yeah. complicated. It's complicated. It complicated. And you make it, you really <laughs> synthesize, you do, you do the Lord's work to bring all of this together. Oh, thank um, you. For people to easily understand, <laughs> so I'd love for people to hear this section about delight because that word is not a—it's th- not a therapy word. That's what I love about it. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. I know, right? Sure. Um, it is this quiet but revolutionary notion of delight that has changed everything for me. Delight as an aspect of attachment took me years to understand and absorb, and even longer to experience. Today, I approach my entire life through the question of delight. Do I delight in Azalea? Do we delight in each other? Do I delight in my life the way Mary delighted in her own and in those wonderful babies and their imperfect mothers? Do I delight in myself even a little? I do. Not all the time, but every day, some flash of delight comes over me and through me. Azalea laughs, I laugh. Delight. Butter sizzles in the pan. Delightful. My new shoes fit perfectly. Someone watches someone else as they tell a story from their day. I yell, I recover. A book I'm excited to read comes in the mail. Azalea kicks her first goal in a soccer practice I happen to be watching. I sleep, I awaken, we all do. The sun falls behind the trees. My heart moves along with it. To be truly delighted is to let it all in, even the end of a day. I hear Thera drive up to our house in the cold winter dusk, and I know we have an evening together to look forward to. What I've learned by loving Mary Ainsworth is that I don't have to work so hard to love. I've learned that love, when working well, is automatic, intrinsic to who we are, almost imperceptible, stitched into our very being, like digestion or respiration, if only loving were as simple as breathing. Thank you. I mean... You, you talk about your, your journey as a mom and how 
your love, I want to say affair. I, I don't know if it's right to use that word, but like your love affair with Mary Ainsworth. Yeah. By the way, you were stalking a dead person, right? <laughs> you, were, you really were yes. like, like, did you ever talk about this with your husband? Like, like this was an obsession. Oh, I, well, my, the tagline for my, for my work is obsession for the greater good. Yeah. So yeah, well, okay. I'm completely obsessed. In, in that case. It's yeah. like the neuroses we all have, like, hey, we're doing really good work. We're helping people with whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you, you talk about stumbling as a mom and having these self-recriminating thoughts, maybe being intolerant of her. Like, you know, we, I think, you know, you also talk about postpartum depression, which affects many moms where they, where you really, you just, you, you just don't want, you're actually triggered emotionally. Your nervous system is triggered by the presence of that cry. Um, yeah. What would you say to mothers or fathers right now who who know exactly what that means? They they hear if they if they if they hear one more cry from their child, they're just going to lose it. Um, what would you say about the ups and downs and what they need to hear? Well, you, I would tell them a story from the Buddhist literature, the Buddhist canon. Ooh, there's a bee in my car. Ooh. Ah. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Live um, action, live action on the yes, podcast. Yes, yes. Well, oh, it's gone. Yay. <laughs> okay. Um, so and I, I'm a long term, I'm a long time Buddhist practitioner. And um, there's a great story that I think about all the time that the Buddha told his parishioners about, it's called the second arrow. Um, you know, if you get, if you get um, struck by one arrow, it hurts like hell. And then you beat yourself up for, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Why am I suffering about this arrow? I, I, sh I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's my fault. Those are what he called the second arrow. And, and the way I think about this is, you know, let's not puncture ourselves with the second arrow by beating ourselves up from the difficulty that is arising in that moment. And if my practice has taught me anything, it's about um, the power that comes from actually uh, being with the pain as it arises. I know that sounds crazy. It, it's not masochistic. It's what else, what else can you do? You know, like your, your body feels like it's on fire when the baby cries and you can't, you've tried all the things of like getting support, getting a babysitter, you know, all those sort of practical matters to help yourself. And if you're the one trying to, um, trying to avoid the feelings that you're having makes it so much worse. Right. It's the avoidance so, that causes the pain. The, the second arrow. Yeah. The, yeah, second the second arrow. arrow. Yeah. The first so, arrow hurts. The second arrow obliterates. Well, it's like we can't escape the first arrow. That's like life exactly. is going to happen, you know, probably 10 times today. I'm going to feel some disappointment exactly. in something. Exactly. And so the, the goal when you get out of bed isn't like, can I get through this day and nothing bad is going to happen. It's like, can I accept where I am and that all of this belongs here? Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that, that sort of brings a chord also to how, how we talk about these primary emotions and secondary emotions. Um, Robert Sapolsky, you just reminded me sort of, he, he wrote this book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Wonderful. Well, I, I'll say this. He's a wonderful writer. I, it, it's a dense book. Um, but, you know, the limbic system responds and knows how to take care of itself. It knows it's almost like it has its own immune system. It takes care of us emotionally. So yeah. we have these emotions. They're all there for a reason. And it's the prefrontal cortex, which zebras do not have. Most animals do 
do not have, but we have it. And right. that's what sort of catches, it's like the net that catches us. And we think about and ruminate, why did I just, why did that guy just cut me off? Did I do something wrong? And then right. we hold on right, to that right, right. Or what an a-hole. Yeah, yes. exactly. So we are holding on to so much. So you're kind of saying- You know, to, another thing, yeah. oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say another thing that, that really worked for me, and I talked about this in my book, is- um, realizing and and there's a whole story about how I came to this when I was um, interviewing someone who I thought was going to relieve me of all of my maternal sins but instead he said to me you know she didn't ask to be born and I was like oh my god wow and I remembered feeling that way as a little kid like when my mom asked me to do something around the house and I was like oh I didn't ask to be born And there's something about that that really caught me and really helped and, and continues to help me when I'm frustrated and I realize this is my doing, you know, I am actually in a privileged position. I asked for this child. Mm. I, you know, I could have, you know, birth control is still available. Um, I, I really wanted this child. I um, tried hard to, to bring this child into the world. And so for me to somehow act feel like a victim to her needs is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to think rationally when you're, you know, in the, in a, in a emotional storm, but that thought really helps me. She didn't ask to be born. So you're sitting there and this is John Kabat-Zinn, by the way, for people, right? This is who you, so you're interviewing the preeminent sort of grandfather. I asked him one time when I met him, I said, is it okay if I refer to you as the father of mindfulness in, the, in Western medicine? He just said, yeah. <laughs> this is the father of yeah. mindfulness in, in the West, uh, Buddhist, yep. um, former molecular biologist at MIT who, who um, ended up studying um, at the scientific level, brought the science to the effects of mindfulness in the body. And you're sitting there in an interview with him and asking him kind of, to give you some grace or you're expecting kind of a more grace. Yeah, I wanted answer. that. And he yeah. kind of slapped you with this. Well, she yes, he did. She Thank didn't God. ask to be born. So he said, you know, I have, I have strong opinions about these kinds of things. Like she didn't ask to be born. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow, that. I really, I did need that. Yeah. I did need that. Yeah. Sometimes we and have I'm to grateful get, to him for get that. out of our own way. And, exactly. And get, get out of out. my head. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, you had a um, a moment I'm kind of envious of, or, or maybe terrified, I'm not sure. You actually got, um, I, and, and if I'm getting this right, an adult attachment expert to share his impressions about what kind of attachment style your daughter might have, which is which is not usual, right? Typically, these are, these are encounters that are studied and, and the results are kept to themselves. They're not therapeutic assessments. Is that correct? No, they're generally not. But a couple things. One is that Patterns of attachment, as per Bowlby, Ainsworth, Mary Main, um, that's different than attachment styles. So the attachment styles work that you just referred to, that's usually done with a self, um, a self questionnaire. Right. So you can find out your attachment style. Mm-hmm. That's a, that is that comes from the classical attachment work, but that's not what I studied. Got it. So attachment styles is different. Now, when I went and got, I got my adult attachment interview done um, Mm -hmm. by Howard Steele in New York City of the New School, and he's a preeminent world expert in adult attachment, he and his wife, Miriam. Um, And I did it because I was writing a a magazine article for New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. 
and um, about attachment. And so he was willing to give me to do the adult attachment interview with me and then share my results so that I could write about it, which was the precursor to my book. Right. Cool. And so in that experience, he did tell me he, you know, I did the full protocol of the AAI, um, found out that I was considered a secure adult. And then because I had studied attachment so deeply, I knew that there's a 75% correlation between an adult attachment and their child, even if you haven't, even if you're not even pregnant yet, it's just a propensity. And so I asked him to sort of weigh in on that. And so it was, you know, it was kind of a, a, a a gift to me. It wasn't anything clinical. It wasn't anything, you know, it was just like, yeah. That surprised you that you were secure attached. It did. you, (laughs) You added that it's, that it's secure attached with an edge. Yes. Well, that was what he, um, he's, he suspected that Azalea would be a B4 baby, which, uh, which is a t- secure with an edge, like, you know, a, a lot of emotion, a lot of sure. clinginess, you know, sure. like that. And that, that made a lot of sense to me yeah. But that ultimately um, she like B4 babies know where their bread is buttered. That's what I like to say. Like, <laughs> you know, when, when you're really desperate, you know where to go, you know how to get your needs met and there, and that your primary caregiver will, be there for you. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that makes such a big difference. Like when, when people, and that's often what we're working on in therapy is to help them develop a sense of self, right? A, a sense that there is some place to go when they're distressed um, and that it doesn't have to be bouncing from panic to kind of numbness and panic to numbness and that sort of thing. Exactly, so, exactly. And, you know, we can become our own secure base. Yeah. Can and you say more about so- that? Yeah, because that's really what this attachment system is about. It's about, does the baby um, know how to use the parent as a secure base? And that's why I wanted to, from the beginning, dispel a lot of that more judgmental language because it can look a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Trust me. It is not, and I've looked at lots and lots of these um, videos and I've seen many, you know, in person. Um, It's not, you know, the sort of white bread vanilla parent child experience that we might that some of us might be expecting Um, security comes it's totally messy it just has to be good enough yeah Yeah. our our systems are so much more forgiving than our type a get it right culture could ever imagine and that's because i in my you know personal opinion it's because we're disconnected from spiritual life we're disconnected from magic we're disconnected from a kind of mystical experience. We, we need everything to be so laid out. This is, you know, again, going a little bit off topic, but to me, this is what happens when we live in a patriarchy. Things sure. are very defined in a specific way. It's a violent kind of rigidity. Um, and we are trying to understand attachment through a patriarchal lens. And it's not like that. It's a very whole, um, it's, it's a complete, profound um, human experience sure sure and i think everybody can relate to the transactional um sense that they have even if if they can't if someone's listening and cannot relate to what you're saying about it being a patriarchal uh context but transactional that that people understand yeah that's a good yeah you know that there is the sense of um i i'm i'm with you because i need something from you and that you know we at the end of the day we all need whether we're whether we're cats and dogs we all need a place Absolutely. to come, come home yeah. and where it's unconditional and everything's okay just as you are. 
And you mentioned um, spiritual connection. That's one of the big reasons I started this this podcast after discovering that you know part of the the the, the rapid recovery for me from a, a form of depression was um, re- just simply remembering that I am uh, connected to God in some way. And I you know not not in uh, in, a, in a religious way, but but having run away from that from a religious up, upbringing and, and just remembering the 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 stories and the the mythology and the um, what's the word you use magic yeah um, that there are things we don't know and that there are mysteries and that those are wonderful opportunities yeah. for us to experience life um, how do you how would you speak what would you say to people who you know I I notice you say we, we're not connected spiritually. We don't have those maybe rituals or routines unless you've adopted some sort of practice. Um, we are connected whether we want to be or not to these things, right? Yes. Like this black box, this black screen, uh, black, yeah. black, black mirror is, um, is uh, omnipresent. And so um, the, I wanted to mention the, the, the Netflix, like I said, at the beginning of the show, the, the Netflix is, um, uh, documentary, which which really brings forward a lot of the founders of Silicon Valley, a lot of the founders of Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. people who were early engineers who ended up saying, you know, this doesn't feel right to me. We are engineering ways for people to be addicted, not just to use their phones, but to be addicted to them. Um, yeah. One of the things that makes my heart stop Literally, just as a parent, and I don't know about you when you see this, but, and again, not trying to be judgmental, like I have done this, I have, you know, we have yeah, to yeah, cook yeah. dinner, we have to get a phone call and we're ignoring our kids, it happens. Um, but to the extent that it, it might happen over and over and you may see like, you know, uh, somebody on their phone and, the, and the, the kid is right there, you know, or, or even kids walking down yeah. the street, talking um, or chatting on their phone, not, not look, making eye contact with anybody. Um, what can we say to encourage parents about this? When, in, is there anything that, that the attachment research says about this that you might extrapolate to how we use technology? Well, as you're probably picking up, I like to begin every single conversation with a de-shaming yeah. of the whole experience. Because when we feel shame, when, when a mother feels ashamed of her phone use, she's going to use her phone more. Yeah. And so that's just a fact. And so, you know, to me, I enter these kinds of things with the notion of delight and to remind us, myself included, that our kids can be fun and, and to try to, you know, try to connect with why we had them in the first place, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, to, and to not think that, you know, delighting in our kids needs to be this like big experience that we have to work really hard at and research and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so to just sort of simplify the whole experience and to de-judge, stop shaming, you know, one another for, for their phone use. And we're all doing it. And we all have a huge empty void, you know, like that's human nature. Now a a secure attachment is going to make it so that you might be able to regulate yourself in that a little bit better. Um, You might be able to regulate yourself a little bit better when you say no to your child if you're securely attached Um, and, you know, and back to the question of coddling, I I think that we are coddling our kids. And part of that is saying yes to technology all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and we're afraid of, of having unhappy kids. Yeah. 
But yeah. trust me, they'll be unhappy for about two minutes and then they'll figure out. I mean, I remember when Azalea was little and I worked from home and we had her, we didn't have her on screens for a very, very long time. She just got a phone in like eighth grade, I think, and or seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. I don't remember. She's in ninth now. It wasn't long ago. And, um, and she would, you know, I would say, look, I'm working. So you got to figure something out. And she would, she's also a really flexible personality. She's an, she's an Aquarius. She's just mellow. Um, but, you know, she would get a little frustrated and want me to play with her or, you know, do something to make her, um, you know, to entertain her. And I just, it wasn't happening. And, and she figured it out. She, she, and she is to this day, the most imaginative kid um, she still plays at 14. She has a collection of wigs. She goes into character. She's a very, you know, uh, like of the moment kid too. Don't get me wrong. She loves TikTok. She just, I just got her an Instagram account. So she's not, you know, in some, some kind of like extraordinary thing, yeah, but those early yeah. years of saying no. Right were the best thing for her. It really stimulates more creativity and-, and um, It really and, does. You know, Screens uh, for little kids is, is just bad. Yeah, just don't I, do I, that. I think the research <laughs> is pretty clear about that, um, that, that the brain needs, and, and the young brain, the young child's brain needs social cues and social interactions and- Yeah, for sure. Facial expressions, and the screen just does not give that. Um, what is your, do you want to wade into a thorny question with me on uh, polyamory? Sure. <laughs> Oh my God, polyamory! <laughs> yeah, we—we we, I don't know if we'll make anybody. We may not. We'll make, some somebody listening will be unhappy no matter how we discuss this. But um, any anything that your studies, uh, you know, of the attachment research would say to what could be going on with those of us who are seeing more fluidity in in how adults are attaching, um, or I guess we could say mating. Uh, people who are really yeah, not, not yeah. interested in marriage. This is not a new thing. This is something that happened in the '60s, right? We all know that. Um, but someone says, you know, the idea of marriage is tired. Uh, I'm secure attached enough to not settle for mating in captivity. <laughs> like, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be poly. And there's a book out called, well, not, uh, I don't know how recent it is, but it's sort of a classic in the poly Amory literature called the ethical slut. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I'm, I'll admit, I don't have experience with it other than as a monogamous person, um, you know, for 20 years with the same person. So what, what's your sense about that? Is it, is there any sense about, um, can a person be secure in relationships where they, where they are having multiple partners? Well, there is research on it. And I talk about it in the afterword of my book that there is, um, you know, consensual non-monogamy. There is a very strong um, theme of adults attachment security. That, that when people are secure, they're more able to tolerate things like right. that. Right. So right. there's nothing definitive. It's a pretty newly studied, you know, sub, a little subject area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but so far, it looks pretty good. It looks like people who are doing that successfully are pretty secure. And I mean, you can see why <laughs> you'd have to be. Yeah, there, there are ways to, to, to I mean, um, juggle, so to speak. Right, you more inputs and more, um, more, more potential people to, to, to keep happy and, and, and juggle. And but some people that certainly 
um, they may be built for that, right? That, and, and kind of what reminds me of what you yeah. said earlier, like some parents, you may look at a parent and have judgment, we all do, right? <laughs> um, sure. And we get triggered about something and, you know, it's, we're not in their shoes. Exactly. You know, so some people are built for certain things and you may not be built for that. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think about securely secure attachment as a secure base behavior, um, you know, personally, I have no interest in polyamory because I am too busy. You know, for, for me, a, a monogamous relationship is so wonderful because it provides that secure base for me. And what I want to go out and explore from that secure base isn't more sexuality, isn't more relationship. It's, you know, life of the mind, it's thoughts, it's books, it's relationships, you know, friendships and family and things like that. That's me. Right. right. But for other people, that secure base might be like, oh, now I want to go explore like being a, a dom or, sure. you know, yeah. whatever. And like, sure. I, I can totally see why that could be the case if you really do have that secure base. Yeah. For them, it may be the doorway to exploration. Um, yeah, absolutely. Fact. Yeah. Or it could be that they're, you know, just shooting themselves with arrows left and right. Yeah. It <laughs> because... could create a lot of pain and suffering on the other hand. Oh my God. I absolutely. cannot imagine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, I, I, I can't say it enough. I think people should get your book. The name of the book is strange situation, a mother's journey into the science of attachment. Um, thank you, Bethany, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Tell people what, where they should uh, read you uh, besides going out to get your book. What other things can they look for? Where can they find you? Well, um, I have a website, bethanysaltman.com, and there you can find out about the book and press. And I also, I'm a book coach, so you can find out about that if you're writing your own book. I'm also on Instagram, bethany underscore saltman. Um, I just started Instagram when the pandemic hit because that's exactly when my book came out, April 20th. Um, and I thought, ooh, I better get involved here. Um, and so please follow me on Instagram. I'm really enjoying that. And I'm on Twitter as well. It's not as active, but Instagram is really the, the place um, for fun. And if you go to my website and you sign up for my newsletter, you can get the first 25 pages of the book downloaded for free. Cool. Cool. I yeah. highly recommend it. And it's an encouraging Thank you. read and will help mothers and fathers uh, everywhere, I think, uh, be, be more uh, optimistic about how they can adapt and change. Uh, as they as they grow in their relationship with their kids and and with life, even if you're not a parent. Um, thank you so much for for being here, Bethany. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening, so that others like you may find the Soul of Life. I mean. Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. If they hear one more cry from their child, they're just going to lose it. Um, what would you say about the ups and downs and what they need to hear? Well, you know, I would tell them a story from the Buddhist literature, the Buddhist canon. Ooh, there's a bee in my car. Ooh. Ah.